there there has been a, a long running joke of of everyone asking operator well but do you have anything we could sell, yeah. you know, uh, because our projects were always the most expensive to activate, but then there was no way to recoup that money. So everyone asking us, like, can operator make flat art yes. that can be in a collector's home? And so we were fighting tooth and nail. We're like, no, we only take commissions from institutions mm -hmm. or brands who will be fine and can work without the product placed in it, uh, which is a really tough sell. That was Anya and Deja from Operator. My name's Eli Scheinman, and this is Proof Artist Profiles. I had a wonderful discussion with Operator. We talked about a variety of topics. We, we spoke about privacy. We talked about surveillance, choreography, generative art. We went deep across all of these dimensions and the way that they bring these different parts of their practice into the creation of really exceptional artwork, things that engage the audience in a participatory way. And they're now bridging that to a project with Artblocks that releases tomorrow. I could not be more excited to share this conversation. Please enjoy. Welcome Anya and Deja. Um, it's such a, a pleasure to have you both on the show. Uh, Anya, we had the pleasure of meeting in, in Tokyo recently. And so fun to follow up just a week later uh, or so and do this this uh, conversation, have this um, this talk. Can you tell us, uh, for those who don't know uh, about both of you, a little about your backgrounds um, would, would be fascinating as a start. Yeah, so my name is Anya Catherine. And prior to working with Deja with Operator, um, I was a choreographer, performance artist, mostly working human body as a medium. And I'm Deja, the, my background is human-computer interaction. I'm a technologist and also an immersive artist. And Ani and I, we met in 2016 on Instagram to work mm. together, but then we fell in love and then we and then we got married and we worked together. So uh, not only is our practice immersive in the medium, mm. uh, but also in the nature. Uh, so this has been going on now for seven years, um, but uh, the other creative technology, performance art, and large-scale environments to create experiential artworks. Oh, it's fascinating. And, and I love the the multiple layers of your collaboration and partnership. Mm -hmm. um, if you're okay with it, can we go back even a little further for both of you? Uh, where did the, uh, the sort of um, technologist uh, come from? Where did that start? Where did the the creation and, and the artist in you start? Were these really early moments in your childhood? Was it sort of the conditions in which you grew up and your parents? Was it school? Where did, where did some of the things you're doing now uh, really uh, originate and start if you had to go way back? If I had to go way back, um, my grandmother put me in painting and drawing classes when I was quite young. And so she was stuffing me with art supplies, I think because she wanted to be an artist herself. And so uh, I, I was uh, receiving the secondhand benefit of her not uh, becoming that uh, in, in her lifetime. And um, so as, as a consequence, I was in art classes, uh, mostly, you know, traditional art classes growing up, uh, but I'm an only child, uh, which meant I spent a lot of time by myself. So I would lock myself in my room. And I remember I had these Tyco video cameras that you had that were tethered to the VHS 
player and I was, you know, in ma making art on the computer and printing it out and drawing and creating these and using two, two deck VHS uh, receivers to edit them. Uh, and so I spent time experimenting uh, with, with making art without even really knowing that's what I was mm. doing. Uh, then in 2004, uh, I went to the University of the Arts where I uh, got a BFA in multimedia. And my introduction the first year was um, looking at the history of computer art through the lens of Black Mountain College experiments of art and technology. Um, I think my first coding book was a processing book, a bunch of JavaScript books. and mm. and um, it was really the program that I studied within was really focusing on not heroing the technology uh, because the the technology, you know, it, it moves so fast and uh, heroing the concept uh, is, is is conceptual rigor is, is more important. So uh, mm -hmm. studying uh, the interaction of uh, human and computers, also audience as participant, thinking back to um, Fluxus and Happenings and Alan Capro, mm. uh, where it's anticipatory art making uh, process and final artwork. And Anya? Not many people go that far back. So I love that. <laughs> it's such a good story. Yeah. And also, I just fast forwarding to you, like live triggering visuals for ASAP Rocky. And I'm like, this actually started with her and her like Tyco cameras in her room as an only mm. child. I, yes, I, I, I did skip that one chapter. Oh, yeah. and, uh, oh, I had a whole career of projection mapping. And, oh, fascinating. And, uh, large scale fabricated environments and a lot of tech using it in a way that it wasn't supposed to be used. So yeah. like a month later, everything would break, but it was fine for the live show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and now I'm fully allergic to screens and video. So as, uh, after many years of projection map, uh, kind of uh, pivoted away from screens as much as possible. But uh, yeah, now, yeah, now for, for you. You're so um, I had a lot of energy as a child. And I think my parents were like, what do we do with this kid? <laughs> so they put me in dance class. It was a very good idea um, because I was, I had a lot of excess energy. So they put, I think a lot of people kind of use dance as a babysitting for their kids. And so I remember a lot of kids being kind of goofy and I was always serious about it. Like I had mm. this feeling during class that I was like so important, like really listening to all the info. And I remember even looking at pictures of myself when I'm five dancing, like in my poses, I'm like, mm. like I think I'm like royal. Like there's something <laughs> yeah. very early on that I felt was super important about dancing. So that's really where I started as I grew up trained in dance. I studied dance in college. Then at a certain point, I got a little bit tired of being taught how to move. And I decided to go on a period of unlearning mm. where I kind of was like, how do I move? Like what kind of movement comes out of me versus what kind of movement am I being taught to perform? Um, and so that was a lot of improvisation and more experimental work, yeah. site-specific work, dance films, getting into performance. Um, and so that's that's what I was doing. And then I did a master's in gender and public policy from the London School of Economics because I was mm. kind of on the side. My other parallel life was women's rights. So then at a certain point, those two worlds kind of collided. And I was like, how can I, you know, use the human body performance and art and movement to drive conversations um, around gender and mm -hmm. around um, 
liberating everyone in the body uh, to see possibilities and not limitations. So that's kind mm -hmm. of what I was doing before I met Deja. Yeah. Okay. So your collaboration now makes so much more sense, given uh, a better understanding of your back, your, your respective backgrounds and how those maybe come together. Uh, let's talk for a moment uh, about your project Line Scanner, which I think was perhaps your first sort of formalized uh, collaboration. Can you talk us through that a little bit? We're going to look at it uh, on the screen at the same time. Line Scanner, I, I, as I was just saying, my I was coming out of a long, several years of um, working within building projection mapping systems and immersive environments. Uh, and it was kind of, I think, the most obvious collaboration mm -hmm. that I just needed to get out of the way. Mm. Projection, yeah. choreography. Like, I'll project and <laughs> you dance. And we'll never come back to this and let's just get it over with. That's like, uh, that's so, like any new, any new relationship start with the, yes. the, the comfort zone. <laughs> yeah, the comfort zone. And, and so the way that, um, we created this, process, uh, we, we, we shot this in LA. So everything you're watching here is, 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 is content, right? So, uh, what I mean by that is, uh, we shot this at Optimus Studios, um, near the airport near LAX and we it, it's in a big hangar and so we had a lift that uh, was rigging a uh, I would say probably a, a 300 pound projector going mm. straight down straight down and Anya uh, was laying on the ground right below it we had a very um, trusting <laughs> relationship very early on yeah um, and and so we were projecting straight down on Anya and I was live triggering animations that I had created uh, and Anya was improvising and then we edited together a, a, a formalized film uh, to create the final product. And where was that ultimately uh, shown? I mean, was it strictly digital or was there uh, some instantiation of this ultimately in, in, in a physical space as well? The, the screen at um, Sika Museum in Korea and other exhibitions mm. of new media art. But this piece, like plus the animations, was not performed live. But the film kind of traveled and was exhibited. Yes. Yeah. It's and film this is, uh, we'll, we'll probably come back to this theme a few times, but uh, is displaying your work in sort of more uh, traditional art institutions and spaces um, you know, there's sort of some self-evident reasons why that might be interesting, but for you guys, uh, why is that maybe a, a good space to display some of your work? Are there other more, um, unsuspecting spaces that you think are, are interesting in their own ways? We'd just love to hear how you think about the exhibition, the display of your work. I mean, as experiential artists, I feel like the display of our work is not secondary. Mm. Is the display of the work, the experience of the work. So even when it comes to production, like when uh, when we have a project, like operator for own works, if we did, which we'll talk about on view in a bit, but when we did on view, like we had to produce that because the museum wasn't equipped to have, um, you know, sub floors and like <laughs> hundreds of feet of fiber optics running and like sensors. So we're always producing our own work and it's really important. Yeah. And I think that being in institutions, at least from my perspective, um, being in institutions is important. And I think 
because early on we were never able to create in an art context mm. um, and our medium was quite expensive. So most of our early work, the only places that it could be displayed or was invited to be displayed were more, um, it would be like brand activation. So we are trying to make art, but we are yes. only able to do that in the context of like experiential marketing or brand collaborations. We were trying to make art, but the only way we could do it was with, you know, a brand. Um, and so we are always kind of in that side thing of like, is it really art? Is it conceptual art? Is it contemporary art? And we were like, yes. Uh, so it's, it's nice to finally see that uh, more traditional art institutions and the contemporary art world is way more open to art made with advanced technology and doesn't kind of write it off as, as um, spectacle or entertainment, but sees mm. the conceptual that can exist inside a piece that uses advantages. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, you touched on it, Anya, uh, on view. I'd love to spend a moment uh, talking about that. Would it be fair to say that that was your first collaborative project or work that really explored these themes of surveillance and, and privacy? Would that be accurate to say? And then can, can you maybe talk us through that one a little bit? Yes. Yes, 100%. So in 2019, um, we created and displayed uh, a work commissioned by the SCAD Museum called On View. And this was really, I, I think it's actually interesting to to describe and, and share how we got commissioned by the SCAD mm, Museum. Yeah. That's good. Um, because uh, our, we, did, we were commissioned by Adidas to create a piece called Off is On. Hmm. And it is an experiential artwork um, that was duration, but we ran it, you know, for three days over and over and over for about six or seven hours performance. a day, a performance mm -hmm. installation uh, with shadow play and architecture and, and live, live performance and music. And friend Kieran, Madame Gandhi, she, she came to the performance and she put it on her IG live. And then a, two days later, we got hit up by the, the head curator of the SCAD Museum of Art and said, we want to bring experiential art to our museum. Mm. Uh, can we commission the work? And so it's interesting that that, that was the bridge of how yes. we arrived to you. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, because our work is experiential and it you know it, it becomes easily an instagram you know mm. backdrop or it could be seen as that way we would have brands reach out to us all the time yes. and say well can you art for us for this brand but could you could you also make it instagrammable and like good yes. for selfies sorry to say that but could you and so we were frustrated by this because we're like our medium isn't a selfie backdrop yes. and you're co-opting it and making it that uh, i and was so i was just going to ask you whether you felt um good about that co-opting and, and i that, that this was a commentary sort of more broadly on the social engagement with your work or if you had some some other feelings about it we had other it feelings <laughs> I mean, of course it, you like, know but i i that's where on view comes into the conversation yeah. because it tells you exactly how we feel about it which is uh we were looking we, essentially what we did what on view is is a three-phase experiential artwork about 80 by 20 feet so it's a large-scale footprint and um it takes about 30 minutes to go through and when you go through um you you kind of quickly realized it's it's more of a theoretical parallel to the selfie stage in a way we kind of built uh, mm. a selfie stage that was commenting on selfie stages and but while we were 
creating this project, we intended to look at the co-opting of um, the rich history of performance and installation art. Yayoko Sama, for instance, um, we, we see quite a bit of experiment, experiential marketing ripping her work. Mm. And we wanted to, to speak on that, uh, how the experience to see art asking the question, are you going to see what's on view? Or are you going to see yourself on view mm. and putting your heart to the back and using it as a selfie backdrop? And so in that, you know, we, we realize uh, Instagram media play a, a huge role in that phenomenon, right? And we kind of slowly, accidentally landed in surveillance capitalism because we're like, well, why is this? Why is this the case? You know, what what is the value of art in, in mm. experiential marketing and brand engagement and social media? And so in that, we ended up creating a piece not just about art engagement, um, uh, and, and selfie stages, uh, but then surveillance, capitalism, and extractive technologies. And that's really become a primary through line through much of your work since then. It, it, would that be fair to say? Yeah. Yes, primarily in its different manifestations and contexts. Yes. So, so maybe, uh, Anya, can you walk us through a little bit the, the, what you guys call the privacy collection, which reflects that focus on those uh, those thematic areas, but includes a number of, of very um, probably connected, but still disparate projects and works. Uh, can you talk us through uh, a couple of those? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think if we start with, I'd rather be in a dark silence. Yeah, let, let's start with that. So that won the, the Lumen Prize in 2021? 21, yes. Yeah, it did. So um, this work, so out of On View, we kind of felt like, okay, we made this artwork and it was like, it's a little bit grim what's going on. And we were like, what happens to the person who went through On View has this realization of like things tracking them. How did that person find agency? How do they find some way to fight back? Um, but as we are artists, and I think we are um, not, we're not trying to create solutions, um, but we wanted to also think through some ideas that could represent agency of people living in these systems. And so we came up with the idea of the signal blocking trench coat, which is called I'd rather be in a dark silence then. So in this piece, any device that's put inside the dark pocket is completely offline. So you can't be traced, hacked, monitored. So it's kind of a counter surveillance fashion piece, conceptual artwork. It does have a function, but we're not also recommending that everyone goes and wears signal blocking garments. Mm -hmm. Like this is not the solution to the problem, but it's a piece that can start a conversation about why that coat would even need to exist. It says something mm. about the context that we live in. Um, but when we displayed this coat in, um, in a group show in Rome in 2020, people we're very confused about why there was a trench coat in a digital art exhibition. So we decided to use our native medium of experiential art to translate uh, what the coat did and, it's ex and display that in an immersive installation. So that's the footage that you're seeing now is from that installation where we translated the capability of the coat um, into a space. We had art photography, a filter, performance, short film, poetry, sound score, everything for one cohesive experience. So by by this time, you guys are getting out of your comfort zones, perhaps, or, or expanding the, those comfort zones uh, across multiple dimensions, it seems. Um, it, at this moment uh, in 2020, 2021, are you exploring blockchain, crypto, 
uh, sort of adjacent things to to privacy and surveillance, or or not yet? So at this time, and when, after we completed on view, we wanted to speak project, and pretty much the only people who said yes to us being able to speak about the project were Christie's Art and Tech Summit in Hong Kong, and the crypto art folks. Mm. So. Everyone else was like, we don't know if this is art yet, but we found ourselves <laughs> the very first cutoff in 2019, speaking about OnView, a project that didn't use blockchain, while Tyler Hobbs, Dimitri Cherniak, Kevin Abosh, and the CryptoPunks were on, displayed on the basement. Mm. And we're on the top, we're talking about this installation. So that was the night like a Winklevoss twin bought a punk. Mm. And we just happened to be kind of thrown in this world with all the early crypto art people. Yeah. Uh, so we loved that that community was the only community that was welcoming for artists working with technology and weren't like suspicious and medium. So we were kind of adjacent and like floating in that circle for many years, but also trying to figure out the best way to incorporate blockchain into mm. what we were doing and into our mediums that felt really native and unique to what we do, which are incorporating performance in the body and space and environment. Uh, so it took us a minute to figure out how to best it without just being like, let's mint pictures of our installation. Yeah. You know, we wanted to do something better than that. And I think we'll come back to, you know, the, uh, the connection between blockchain and privacy, because there are these, or maybe we talk about it now, there, there sort of are these interesting dimensions of transparency and privacy on chain that um, I think is probably uh, emerging or present in some of your work. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, after we left, uh, I'd rather be in a dark silence than we decided to create the privacy collection. And the privacy collection is looking at how privacy functions and blockchain technology. Uh, so more through a Web3 lens rather than a Web2 lens. Um, and the core thesis is looking at the tension between privacy and transparency, right? Uh, and so that's why you will see even in what you're looking at now, um, the use of glass materials and transparent materials, uh, the human body, uh, the idea of hiding in plain sight mm. on chain. Um, being known for being unknown, um, trying to express oneself and move. And, and so each lot of the privacy collection, um, which started in February, 2022. So after we left, uh, after we completed, I'd rather be in a dark silence, then we, we began the privacy collection. And the privacy collection is looking at how privacy functions in more of a Web3 context. So these projects were looking at privacy through Web2 context. We were really looking at the, the underlying thesis of how privacy, the, the, the tension between privacy and transparency in blockchain technology. So I'm curious, uh, before your, you, the, before the privacy collection, it sounds like um, the work was, your, your work was manifesting um, in two primary ways. So, th so through institutions as um, experiential art installations, but then also perhaps sort of doing some so-called agency or brand work on the sort of, sort of more commodification side of things. Um, is it true that until the privacy collection and crypto and blockchain that you were not explicitly selling these works in any form? Uh, and if so, I'm curious how 
being able to capture these moments, capture these experience, experiences on chain sort of changed your relationship to the work or has changed your your lives in, in different ways. I would just be curious to hear uh, how that's sort of manifested and, and altered your relationship with your work. Yeah, I mean, we were, our friends and our families would laugh at us. They're like, did you really have to choose the two mediums to work in that you literally cannot sell and are also very <laughs> to make? We're like, we want to make the most expensive type of work possible to sell. Everyone's like, I don't know what's wrong with you two. So yeah, to live um, on commissions and then quietly white label projects hmm. using our skills um, in order to, you know, pay to have the ridiculous gold floor that we wanted in our museum installation by mm. doing corporate work on the side. That's how we were, you know, trying to push forward our career. Um, so I think it definitely changed when we figured out to incorporate blockchain and have something to be able to sell that didn't feel like we're completely changing our medium or doing something mm. kind of lazy because everyone owns an artwork by us. We don't want it to be like a result take away from something, but really have a meaningful tie and have it be something that we're proud to have people say is an artwork and was created to be consumed and owned in the way that it was yeah. made. That changed a lot. But there are, was, are, I, I just, okay. No, no, go ahead. I, I just ahead. wanted to add, there, there has been a, a long running joke of, of everyone asking operator, well, but do you have anything we could sell? Yeah. You know, uh, because our projects were always the most expensive to activate, but then there was no way to recoup that money. So everyone asking us, like, can operator make flat art yes. that can be a collector's home? And so we were fighting tooth and nail. We're like, no, we we'll only take commissions from mm -hmm. institutions or brands who would be fine can work without the product placed in it, uh, which is a really tough sell, you know, uh, and it actually happened with Office On where the performers mm. uh, at the shoe launch were barefoot. Uh, so we won that <laughs> one. Uh, and I think it worked out okay. But um, yes, so the, the privacy collection marked the first time in our seven year practice that we sold a work. And sort of last question on, on that, uh, that theme. It, how does that change the creation process when you know that something is that that is maybe inherently experiential will also have this other form and it sounds like the the latter the other form that the tokenized form doesn't come as an afterthought or later in the process so i'm curious how do you how does it inform from the very beginning something that is otherwise very experiential in every work that anya and i create there is an audience participant, I would mm. say 90% mm -hmm. of, uh, of the works that we create. Uh, and because of that, the human body and the human experience is at the creation of the work. And so when we think about the role of a collector in, in one of our artworks, we think of them as an audience participant. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it really shapes the structure of the work. And for us, there is what blockchain technology affords experiential art is an experiential interface where we mm. meet with duration in longer formats mm -hmm. than we could without it. Meaning the, the, the fact that we can be bound to a collector through a token who can then transfer 
that token to another collector means that we can hold a connection with them without losing it. Uh, and so that, for instance, like an artwork that we created, Let Me Check With The Wife, mm. where we implemented a secondary token that's attached via the owner of function to the primary super rare token, yeah. we em employ a sense of reverse utility, where the collector had to provide utility to us mm. every year on our wedding anniversary, <laughs> July 9th, mm -hmm. you know? And so this that's just wouldn't up. be possible. It is. <laughs> it's coming up. Uh, so that, that just wouldn't be possible you know, without, yeah. without this technology, right? Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Um, I'd love to shift just briefly to your project Unsigned, which uh, in some ways uh, explores those dimensions that we were just talking about with your relationship with collectors and the role of collector more broadly in, uh, in these dynamics of artist uh, and purveyor or... Uh, appreciator, I, I don't know, there's some good nomenclature there, but on the other side of the art, the the participant, and and as we've been talking about, in this case, the collector, and um, can, you, can you talk to us a little bit about Unsigned? It's sort of, um, would it be fair to say, a, a different form of work from you, um, but very conceptual in nature, as is much of your work. Can you tell us a little bit about this one? I think in terms of uh, impact, uh, you know, was, was a really important piece of work and body of work. Thank you. Yeah. I think unsigned is consistent with our past work in the sense that it's a conceptual artwork. Um, what's different about it mostly is that there was the idea and this is the collaboration with Annika Meyer. So we had the idea to do this on a Friday night and the next Saturday we minted the first four signatures. Wow. So in that sense, like a very, like responding to this finding by Dr. Dr. Helen Gorel, that when a man signs their artwork, the value goes up. But when a woman artist signs their artwork, the value goes down. So a signed artwork by a woman artist is actually worth less than an unsigned version, which to us just put, it was just a unpleasant like realization of like, wow, we're in 2023 and this is still the case. What we were thinking is, is now that we were kind of getting deeper into the web art space, we're like, well, what if we are able to prove the value of the signature by itself as an object. So then the logic would follow that if there's an artwork that is signed, then if the signature alone is worth X amount of money, then if it was applied to an artwork, it would make it more valuable. So we're kind of raising the conceptual and literal value of the signatures of women and non-binary artists by selling them as NFTs. Um, and the response to this was really fantastic. And many of the artists that we reached out to, we just asked, would you be interested? Here's what we're doing. And a lot of them responded with, I was just told last week by a gallery that mm. no collectors wanted to buy my work because they think I'm going to have a kid and stop making art. Mm. And so like, we just thought these stories were like pouring out from artists that let us know and that we don't realize um, the ways that a lot of this, you know, what feels like old yeah. school gender bias is still mm -hmm. seeping into Web3, which is trying or claiming to be so much better. Right. So that's what the is doing and it started a big conversation so we're really proud of it and do you think uh, uh i mean part of the promise of this space is that you could be anon that your gender could be unknown or fluid or otherwise um do you think that uh is is there's still an opportunity for gender bias to be less of a thing because there is that opportunity to be anon or otherwise 
Or, or is that uh, not an ideal outcome where a female artist is anon for the reasons you're exploring in Unsigned? Exactly. That, that, that's what I think. I don't feel like, like anonymity should be a luxury only able to be mm. afforded by men as a conceptual choice and for women on non-binary people for that, that mm. their gender makes them less valuable. So I think I, I, a way for Web3 to do better and um, be better than the traditional art world. And I just hope that projects like Unsigned and others can kind of like push everyone up and actually be the change and, you know, not just focus on decentralization, but other values that we want to have in the space to make it, I don't know, a superior world that we're working towards building. Yeah, well said. Um, okay, so let's transition now to something that's incredibly exciting, which is your release uh, Human Unreadable, which which drops tomorrow on Art Blocks. This is a collection of 400 pieces. Um, let's let's dig into it. Uh, how did the that project come to be? I know it's been something like nine months in the making. Uh, I've heard you, I think, describe this work as sort of a computational choreography. Um, either of you would just love to sort of have you walk us through the project inception and those nine months of process and work and, and then ultimately what people will experience when they they mint tomorrow yeah, so human unreadable is part of the privacy collection which as deja mentioned earlier looks at the tension between privacy and transparency and blockchain technology so each of the lots is exploring that subject and also each of these lots is super focused on the human body which we felt as we entered into web3 was lacking the privacy lot in the privacy collection is site specific to crypto culture right mm. And so like the privacy portraits were responding to PFPs, for instance. Um, Human Unreadable is responding to the site that is long form generative mm. art. So that was a conceptual choice to even mm -hmm. have it on art blocks. Um, the, the project, uh, we met actually Eric in uh, well, almost one year ago at Enific, and we were talking about performance and bringing uh, a more fleshy approach to blockchain mm. art. And it's a challenge. And, mm -hmm. and for us, we wanted to, to create a generative artwork that had the body at the center of it. And, and, and so we, we discussed the idea with Eric that what if we created generative a generative choreography method? And so what we've done in the nine month making was first and foremost creating an on-chain generative choreography method that then could drive the final visual output, but mm -hmm. also drive the output of choreographic sequences that could be performed live and so human unreadable is an artwork that reveals in three acts right so the beginning of the artwork is the reveal on art blocks and the mint on art blocks and it ends in a live performance in an art institution. Middle ground, um, the second, the second act, which is the uncovering of the choreography that created and drove all the visual parameters of the work that you on our blocks. Yeah, fascinating, and, and thank you for, for taking us through that. Uh, I'm curious, you and you alluded to this. In this case, the the sort of site specific nature is that it's long form generative. Why is that, let's call it a site, why is that site interesting to, to the two of you? I think when we think of 
site and when we are thinking about why privacy portraits, which are responding to PFPs, which is the people wanting to represent themselves in something other than their face, which is very different than Web2, which is focused on the face and the selfie and suddenly people want to be represented by something else. So that was kind of a phenomenon that as artists, just looking at how this technology is um, creating certain cultures and, and pushing forward certain kinds of art that show up in order to kind of um, meet people's needs in this new sphere. So that's kind of privacy portraits responding to PFPs as a phenomenon. We also feel like long form on-chain generative art is a phenomenon and the power mm. that it's gotten and the kind of traction and the conversations and the way that it's also led to many people now diving back to the early generative art of the 60s and people mm. who were totally forgotten now becoming huge and having you know exhibitions because this movement now made people appreciate the roots that happened 60 years ago so yeah. i think it really had a powerful uh, movement and kind of became a phenomenon the popularity of it so we were kind of thinking we should reflect on the intensity of what's happening right now with this medium and jump into the conversation with kind of our take. Yeah. Well, uh, and well done because, uh, from, uh, my own, uh, perspective, but also many of the collectors I admire the most, um, you know, it, there's sort of great agreement that, uh, your take on long form generative is some of the most interesting and important, um, that, that we've seen, frankly. So both from a conceptual level, but also the final output uh, of the work, the multiple layers of the, the sort of three uh, dimensions across which the work exists ultimately. So cannot wait for, for tomorrow uh, and the mint. I wanted to close uh, with a couple sort of broader questions, uh, if you're okay with it. Um, first, let's start with, you know, is there anyone... And I always find this fascinating. You know, I do some curation and I'm always thinking about sort of who is doing interesting things conceptually uh, that I may not be aware of or otherwise. Are there any artists that come to mind for uh, both or either of you that uh, you might want to shine a light on and, and highlight that you're finding um, especially interesting right now? I would highlight Lauren Lee McCarthy, mm. uh, who is also the inventor of P5JS. Yes. And an so, LA native. Yes. And an LA native, uh, which I always like to remind people that she invented P5JS because it is uh, the framework in which uh, most art blocks works are created. I think it's just important to acknowledge that. Yes. I mean, it, um, I am so aligned on that one and so much agreement. Uh, I think Laura, for those who are watching from the collector side, I think Laura has a couple NFTs. She's she's released a few a few things, but just more broadly to your point, um, the recognition of her contributions I think are increasingly important. I'd love to have her on the podcast actually, uh, and and talk about uh, that background. Uh, Anya, anyone jump out for you? Yeah, so one of my favorite artists for the past several years, who is also a dear friend, but that I just feel like is one of the most important artists of the century, is um, Evelyn Benchikova. Mm. She's also a Berlin-based artist, and she has minted a few pieces recently, but she just has such a beautiful, timeless vision, really conceptual approach, poetic use of technology, and I just, everything that comes out of her, I adore. So I have to call her out. 
I love it. That that's one for me to to look into. Uh, I, I don't know the name, so appreciate that. That I get to discover someone new as well. Um, and and last question: um, What can we expect from the two of you moving forward? What do you think is sort of coming down the pipeline? What themes, mediums, spaces, sites? Uh, are are interesting, you know, over some some period of let's call it, you know, the months and years ahead. Well, there will be more lots of the privacy collection, and as as we started uh, the privacy collection in a very sort of familiar way with three uh, D assets and then video, and then slowly getting weirder and weirder mm. and pulling the art out <laughs> of the screen. Um, I want more weird. Yeah, <laughs> we're going. Outstanding. And just to wrap up, uh, moving forward, will you guys mint exclusively on ETH? I know you've done ETH, you've done Tezos. Or do you have strong perspectives or do you sort of like both for, for separate reasons? I have a strong perspective. Oh, go. My strong, my strong perspective is um, it depends on what the work needs. Sure. I think there's like realities, of course. Yeah. Um, where... For, for instance, unsigned yes. made sense happen mm -hmm. on Tezos, 100%. Yep. Um, and I think from a technology perspective, um, sometimes it makes more sense uh, on Ethereum. Uh, and I think um, we don't have any one allegiance, but uh, we consider the context both conceptually and technically and what the project means. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a, a thoughtful, nuanced perspective. Uh, as I would expect from from the two of you. Um, well, it's been so great to spend a little time together. I know it's late your time on a Friday, so appreciate it. Uh, I will be minting tomorrow and um, just good luck and excited to see the collection and the mints uh, come to life. Cannot wait. Well, thank you, Eli and Prue for your time. It's been super nice. A pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right, that is it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you would like to help us out, head on over to proof.xyz and click on the reviews button at the very top and leave us a five-star review. Thanks so much. Take care.